And I want to work uh, through this story in reverse. We start at the end and work out back to the beginning. And the first thing I want us to see is about the humble power of foot washing, the humble power of foot washing. This is a familiar story. I, I guess that even those who've got no real connection with church don't know much about Christianity. This is a, a, a sort of metaphor that people would often just have know that if you talk about foot washing, there's a sense of what that means, of, of humbleness, of humility, of, of serving, a demonstration of, of humble service. But we need to see that this is not just about humble service. There's also power. There's a humble power to this foot washing. And part of the power that we see here is that Jesus promises a blessing to his disciples if they do the same things. Verse 17, last verse in our passage, if you do these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Now, my working assumption this morning is that you want to be blessed. So I know that I want to be blessed. I want to have a tangible experience of the favor of God in my life. I want to know God's blessing in my life. I want to know God's blessing on our church, looking for the blessing of God. In the psalm that we started this morning with, there's something of a, a picture of what blessing looks like. Um, read the beginning and the, and the end, end of the psalm, but Psalm 92 verse 10 says, You have exalted my strength like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. It's a rather contrasting metaphor there. I'm as strong as a wild ox. I'm like one of those South African or Irish prop forwards playing rugby yesterday. And I'm covered in fine oils. It's a very contrasting image, a kind of very masculine and quite a feminine image married together. We see there, but this sense of the blessing of God. What is it to be blessed by God? It's no strength in God. And it's to be, in a sense, lubricated by the oil of God, these fine oils being poured into our Lives, And I want that kind of blessing from God. And Jesus says here, do these things and you will be blessed. And the thing which Jesus has just done is wash his disciples' feet. So here's the question. Are we missing out on blessing from God if we're not washing one another's feet? Is there a blessing missing in my life? Is there a blessing missing in our church if we're not washing one another's feet? It's not something that we do. Does that mean that we are less blessed than we would be if we did? How about if each Sunday as you came in, or maybe just out on the pavement, there was a row of bowls and towels, and the Connect team, rather than greeting you with a smile or a hug or a handshake, greeted you by saying, Sit down, take off your shoes and socks, and let me wash your feet. Would that result in a greater blessing for us as a church? How do the Connect team feel about that? I can see Dick's looking really enthusiastic about the prospect of, of doing that Sunday by Sunday. Maybe we'd struggle a little bit more to, to recruit people for the Connect team. I don't know. Or may, maybe everybody would be rushing to serve in the Connect team because of the promise of greater blessing from God. But my sense is that probably it would weird us out a little bit. That actually it would, it would make us feel a bit uncomfortable. It's not something that we would particularly want to engage in and, and do. Probably our response would be more like Peter's. You're never going to wash my feet. It's just not going to happen. Dick, hands off. You're not going to wash my feet. It's not happening this morning. Now, of course, in the, in the ancient world, foot washing was an expression of, of hospitality. In Luke chapter 7, we read about Jesus going for dinner at the house of a man called Simon the Pharisee. And 
a whole lot of stuff goes on, and it ends up with Jesus actually, in a sense, rebuking Simon for Simon's lack of genuine hospitality. One of the things that Jesus rebukes Simon about is he says to him, you did not give me any water for my feet. I came in for dinner at your invitation, and you haven't washed my feet. It's a failure of hospitality. In our context, it might be something a little bit more like if you go to somebody's house for dinner, and they don't offer to take your coat, they don't offer you a drink, They might have invited you in, but you can sense there's no real warmth, there's no real hospitality going on, even though you're at their house for dinner. That's the kind of thing which is happening here in this encounter between Jesus and Simon the Pharisee. Lack of hospitality. The only other time in the New Testament where we have a mention of foot washing is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy about how life in the church is to be organized. And one of the practical things that has to be organized is care for widows. And uh, Paul gives this instruction, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. What kind of women qualify for provision from the church in this context? It's those who've shown real hospitality to God's people. They have washed the feet of the saints. And I think probably there's something metaphorical as well as literal there. It's about a heart attitude that these are the kind of women who've shown that kind of welcome, that kind of care for others. They, in turn, must be cared for. So we have that example, but we don't see much else in the history of the church of foot washing happening. It's something which the more historic churches still do at Easter, Maundy Thursday. The Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury will uh, get on their hands and knees and uh, wash the feet of, uh, of, of people as part of uh, Easter celebrations. Should be a picture of Pope Francis. Have you got that there, Esther? There you go. Uh, Pope Francis. And you can see that there is a, there's something actually quite shocking about that, isn't there? Somebody who is as powerful as the Pope, on his knees, washing and kissing somebody's rather unattractive foot. (laughs) There is something pretty powerful about that. Um, And the only other time I'm aware of, really, in churches where foot washing happens, it's in the snake-handling churches of Appalachia in in the States where there is a very legalistic, literalistic interpretation of Scripture. In Mark 16, it says that they shall take up servants and drink poison and not be harmed. And so the snake-handling churches in Appalachia, where they will handle snakes and drink poison, and will also wash people's feet, because Jesus said you must wash one another's feet. So they will do that as a very literalistic interpretation of the Scripture. Now, I am neither a widow in my 60s, nor an archbishop, or even a snake-handler, but should I be washing your feet? <laughs> With your intimacy issues, Richard, I'm sure you wouldn't really want me to. <laughs> now, it's, it's, it's easy to explain foot washing away. And actually, it's a, it's a helpful case study in, in how to interpret and contextualize Scripture. What we can see is that Foot washing was something which happened in the culture of Jesus' day, and that was because it was actually a necessity that people didn't have shoes, they wore sandals, or probably lots of them didn't have any kind of foot covering at all because they were too poor, 
and they'd just walk through muck. The world would have been much dirtier than ours. Uh, they'd have been literally walking through animal dung and all kinds of mess. There would be no sewage systems. So their feet would have been disgusting. And then you come in for dinner, and they reclined, laid down for dinner, didn't sit at the table like we do. So although the feet were away from the table, more obvious than our feet would be if we're sitting with our feet under a table. And you want to get that muck off your feet because it's just not nice. And so culturally, foot washing makes complete sense here. But it was a very demeaning thing to do because washing somebody's skanky, goat dung-covered toes is not nice. It was the most demeaning job. And in a Jewish context, context of Jesus' culture, it was meant to be non-Jewish servants, slaves, who did the foot washing because it was too demeaning for anybody else to do. Now, our cultural context is obviously very different, that we... Yeah, sure, we wear flip-flops and sandals in the summer, but generally we've we got shoes, and our world actually is much, much cleaner. We're not trailing through muck in the way that people in the first century would be. I was, I was um, away for a couple of days this week, past week, up in London for a gathering of other pastors from the advanced family of churches we work with, and I, one, for one day I was sitting next to a brother who was wearing sandals, and there was a definite first-century aroma coming my way. And I did think, perhaps as an act of humility and also a self-service, I should offer to wash his, wash his feet and do something, but uh, rather than just enjoy the wafting's farmyard smell that was coming my way. But generally, that's not the problem that we have. We don't have the same feet issues that they would have done in the first century. And so what we do with things like this in the Bible is we interpret the, sim- the symbol and apply the principle. And we can see in this that Washing feet is the symbol, the principle is serving one another. And so we might say, well, as long as we're serving one another, we don't need to wash one another's feet. And that, I think, is a legitimate exercise in biblical interpretation. We do something similar with the instructions about hair and head coverings in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, there are instructions about the length of hair that men and women are meant to have and about women wearing head coverings when they come into church. We don't apply that literally. Because we can see there's a cultural aspect that in the world to which that instruction is given, the length of men and women's hair and who did and didn't wear hats had significance culturally in a way which just isn't the case for us. And it's good to see that Prisca is following the word of God. That's good. She's got a hat on. The west of you women, shame on you. No, it's a cultural thing, so we interpret it differently. We interpret the symbol, but we hold on to the principle. And we see the principle there in 1 Corinthians is about how we come before God in worship, how we understand ourselves as men and women before God, and about how men and women are to relate to one another. And we would hold on to those principles still, and that does shape how we do church life. So we hold on to the principle, but we interpret the symbol. But the trouble is, in doing that, we can, it is possible to lose a symbol and to lose the meaning of what the symbol represents. And Jesus here does give an explicit command. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So are we let off the hook simply because we weren't there in that room? Or is it actually a case if those disciples were meant to do it, so should we as disciples of Christ? How do we resolve this? I think the way we resolve it is by, it's an answer which is another question. In our serving of one another, 
Are we doing anything as humbling as foot washing? In our service of one another, are we doing anything as humbling as foot washing? And if we're not, we might be missing out on the blessing that Jesus promised us if we do it. So in our context, what would be that humbling? What is our equivalent of foot washing? I mean, I think of this sometimes in, in, the, in the case of care workers. So I, I think perhaps some of the most Christ-like people in our society are care workers who are doing very much the equivalent of foot washing. And there's a parallel here in, in this culture, the culture of the New Testament. It was meant to be non-Jewish slaves who did the foot washing because it was such a demeaning thing to do. So many of our care workers come from overseas to serve us and do a job which in many ways can seem very demeaning, but is so vitally important. And so I think perhaps some of the most Christ-like people in our society are care workers. Now, I think we should feel the challenge of this, that what we need to see is that Christianity, in many ways, is an exercise in getting as low as possible. Getting as low as possible. That we don't seek to exalt ourselves, but we look to humble ourselves because that's the way of Christ. And I do think it would be a mistake to be prescriptive about what that means. I think what foot washing look like, looks like does vary according to context, does it vary according to culture. Of course it does. But I do want to leave the question hanging there for us. Are we doing anything as humbling as foot washing? If you're a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, are you doing anything as humbling as foot washing? And if you're in life groups, life groups starting up again this week, be a great discussion question to chat through. In our context, what does foot washing mean? And what is it that we are doing which is as humbling as what Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet? And it's an important question to ask. I, I don't want to let myself off the hook on this one. I don't want to let you off the hook on this one because I don't want us to miss out on blessing from God. So it's an important question for us to ask. And I, I know myself, my tendency always is to lean towards comfort. And what Jesus did, does here is lean towards discomfort. So what is it? What is it we're doing which is as humble as washing somebody's feet? Because I want to know Christ-like power and blessing in my life. And Jesus said, you'll be blessed if you do these things. I want the power of Christ's blessing. And that means I need to wash some feet. Second thing we see is Peter's response. Now, in this story, Peter, Simon Peter, two names, Simon Peter, same person. Peter is the fool guy. He, as often in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Peter seems to represent us, the human race. So we always get the human angle with Peter, such a human character. And we see Peter going through a range of emotional responses to Jesus and the prospect of having his feet washed in this story. The first response is that Peter is embarrassed. He's uncomfortable. Surely you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. And there's a discomfort which Peter's experiencing there, which we should feel as well. This story should make us uncomfortable. And actually the way that Jesus ministers to us should make us, in a sense, uncomfortable. How can the Lord of glory... Surely not, Lord. Surely you're not going to do this. I saw a... Um, Fantastic little video on YouTube this week. Some guys were out mountain biking on the Balmoral Estate in Scotland. And they were going up a trail. And coming down the other way was the king, all on his own, just having a walk. And he stopped for a chat. 
And he was completely down to earth and just friendly and talking about, isn't the weather awful? The midges have been terrible this year. <laughs> and, just, and it was really interesting because the, the guy who was leading this group of mountain bikers and, and doing the video, he said afterwards, I'm not a big fan of the royal family. I'm annoyed because I didn't want to care, but that was quite cool. <laughs> and it was just a really nice little vignette that these guys are kind of breathtaking away, that they'd bumped into the king who was just on his own, and he was so down to earth in talking to them about the weather and the midges, and it was a sort of overwhelming experience. Now think about Peter, who's got Jesus coming to wash his feet. Peter really did care about Jesus. He, really did, he wasn't indifferent to Jesus. He really cared about Jesus and what Jesus thought, because he knows who Jesus is. A few chapters earlier in our gospel, John chapter 6, the whole mass of the crowd who've been following Jesus decide to leave. His teaching gets too hard. And Jesus says to the 12, to the disciples, are you going to leave as well? And Peter's response is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Simon Peter knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Jesus, he knows that Jesus is the Holy One. He knows that Jesus is a Savior. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that Jesus is King. He knows who Jesus is. And then Jesus is going to come and wash his feet. And so Simon Peter's first response is embarrassment, discomfort. It is utterly inappropriate for Jesus to wash his feet. We should feel some of that discomfort. Surely Jesus wouldn't. Surely Jesus wouldn't wash my feet. Surely Jesus wouldn't die for me. Peter's second response, though, is that his embarrassment quickly turns to a sort of defiance. Turns from, surely you're not going to wash my feet, to, you're never going to wash my feet. And what Peter does is to try and assume command of the situation. And we can do that. I think I've done this at times when I've felt socially embarrassed. You try and get rid of the embarrassment by taking control of the situation. You try and put things back into their boxes. And Jesus is way out of his box here. And so Peter says to him, Lord, get back in your box. Get in your lordship box. Get back in your God box. You're not meant to be in the feet washing box. Tries to take control of the situation. And we see the complexity of human nature in Peter. Because Peter is, of all the disciples, he's the one who is most eager to follow and obey and love Jesus. But he's also the one who is quickest to try and tell Jesus what to do. There's a kind of inherent contradiction in Peter, which we can see in ourselves at times as well. And, and it's actually in Peter here, there's a sort of, we see it a couple of times in accounts of Peter interacting with Jesus in the Gospels. There's a, an apparent humility, which is actually arrogance. You can't wash my feet, Lord. Seems humble. Actually, it's arrogance because he's refusing what Jesus freely wants to give him. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him here. What Jesus does is to explain it. Jesus says to him, look, Simon Peter, you have to be washed by me. If you want to part with me, you have to be washed by me. Bible commentator F.D. Brunner says, this is how we might translate it. Jesus saying, if I can't forgive your sins, you can't have my presence. If Jesus can't trump our conscience, we can't have his companionship If we think we are too humble or too unworthy to receive Jesus' free grace, we will miss out on him entirely. There can be a kind of false humility about us which says, no, not me, Lord, which is actually a refusal of God's grace being poured into our lives. 
And Jesus' washing of Simon Peter's feet was an act of humility, but it took a reciprocal humility on Peter's part to receive it. And just as I want, and I want for us to know the blessing of God, I want and want for us to have a part with Jesus. And that means allowing Jesus to wash us. It means that Christianity is not a faith about self-sufficiency. It's not even meeting God halfway. No, we don't meet God any part of the way. It's all about him. It's all about his free grace. It's nothing that we do. It's all about what Jesus has done. And that's what Peter needs to submit to here. It's not about telling Jesus what to do. No, it's responding. It's just giving in to Jesus, allowing him to wash your feet, to cleanse you and pour his grace into your life. But where that leads to is Peter's third response all happened so fast, goes from embarrassment to defiance to suddenly being completely over the top. Well, if that's the case, Lord, not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well, wash me all over, Lord. I want to be all in. There's a grateful exuberance that Peter suddenly expresses. And, and we see here Peter at his best, his all-in best, following Jesus. But we see Peter as so often missing the point. Because what Jesus explains to him is, well, look, this foot, foot washing really is, is a symbol of what is going to come. There's going to be a thorough cleansing. Already, actually, somehow, Peter, you're already clean because of what's about to happen at the cross. At the cross, all the muck is going to be dealt with, not just the muck on your feet, not just the goat dung, not just the little sins that you've tripped up over this week. No, the whole is going to be done with. All your sin is going to be carried, dealt with, killed, nailed at the cross. You're going to be washed clean head to toe. You're going to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Why? Because of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. The forgiving, love, powerful judgment of sin given to us because of Christ's sacrifice in our place. And that is a once-for-all act. The cross was a once-for-all act. And when we come to Jesus and we come in that position of complete humility and say, okay, Lord, I receive it. Give me your free grace. Jesus washes us head to toe. Nothing for us to do, nothing more for us to do, nothing to add to it. It doesn't need to happen again. It happens. You're declared righteous, clean, accepted by God. And that's represented in our baptism. It's one of the reasons why we love baptisms. That's a sign. You get in the water, you're washed head to toe. The sign of what Jesus has done for you. Cleansed, righteous, pure, holy. You're clean. You're clean. But there are times, of course, when we do feel that our feet have trailed through some muck. We get tripped up by sin still, even though we're free from sin. Still get tripped up by sin. And so there are times when it feels like our feet need to get washed. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's one of the reasons why we celebrate communion most Sundays. Part of the meaning of communion is it's a meal of examination. It's a moment for us to look into our hearts and to say, well... Is there some muck on my feet? We don't come to communion because we're worthy. We come because we're unworthy, but God in his grace declares us to be worthy and righteous in his sight. But we can still, we're still called to examine ourselves. Other things, Lord, I need you to say, have I trailed some muck this week, which I need you to wash off? I'm clean, but Lord, wash my feet. I come before you again. And the sad reality of this story, of course, is that one of those there was not clean. 
One of the most amazing things about this is that Jesus even washed Judas's feet, but Judas wasn't clean. It says that the devil had prompted, or devil, the devil actually put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. We see here the incredible humility of Jesus. He even washes, washes Judas's feet, but we see in Judas a, a refusal to accept the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the cleansing of Jesus. It's possible to even sit in church and refuse Jesus. It might be that your heart yet hasn't gone to Jesus. It's a dangerous place to be. Where's your heart today? Judas's heart was far from Jesus. Peter's heart was full in. Let's be like Peter. Full in for Jesus. Then the third thing to see from this story is the power of love. It says, verse 1, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. When uh, our kids were small, one of the books we would read at bedtime was the story of the nut brown hairs. Anybody else read that story, heard that story? Some of you are young enough to have it read to you when you were kids, probably. And uh, there can be that beautiful moment as a parent when you've got a little child, three or four years old maybe, had a bath, wrapped in a big fluffy towel, all warm and cozy and sleepy, and you think, yes, soon they're going to be asleep, praise God. And it's that moment... That this overwhelming parental love starts to bubble up, which at other times maybe gets, doesn't feel quite so present. But at that moment, you feel it overwhelmingly, and you're reading this beautiful little sentimental story about the nut brown hairs, and the question is, guess how much I love you? And the answer, of course, is, I love you right up to the moon and back. And there can be a, a real... So it's why it's been such an enduring story. It's one of those kids' stories which has sold millions of copies because it's so powerful. Georgie's 25 now. It's a long time since I read the story of the nut brown hairs, but still love you right up to the moon and back. We can read it again at home if you like today. <laughs> I'll wrap you in a towel this evening, sit you on my knee. We can read the story of the nut brown hairs. Practicing for when I have grandchildren. Now, the extent of Jesus' love his right to the end love, his right up to the moon and back love, is about to be demonstrated at the cross. But this foot washing is a prelude, an anticipation of that. And we do need to feel the extent of this love. And the trouble is that our feelings can betray us. Betraying feelings are very flexible, very fluid, very subjective, very here and there. And so we need what is objective and doesn't shift. We need the objective truth of the cross the once-for-all, unchangeable, complete, final sacrifice of Christ. We need to be fixed on that objective, rock-like truth. Again, it's one of the reasons why we celebrate communion most Sundays, because that's that moment of objectivity. I take the little cup of juice, the little crumb of bread, things I can hold on to, and I remind myself of the objective, unshakable truth that Jesus, the King of glory, died in my place, carried my sin, was raised to new life, and holds me secure for all time. Objective truth we can cling to. But you don't just want to know it, you do want to feel it. <laughs> you do want to feel it. And so one of our prayers should be, Holy Spirit, would you apply the love of Christ into my heart? Even as we come and take communion in a few moments' time, that should be our prayer. Holy Spirit, come and apply the love of Christ in my heart. Let me feel it. Let me feel afresh the love of Christ. Because the love of Jesus is powerful. And it says here how powerful it was. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put 
all things under his power. Jesus has all power. And that means that what looks like an act of humiliation, as Jesus washes the disciples' feet, is actually an act of incredible power and strength. And I think as Jesus takes off his outer clothes and as he wraps the towel around his waist, is like Jesus is enacting the role of high priest, but in a totally unexpected way. In Exodus 39, we read about God's instructions for Aaron and his sons about how they are to conduct the priesthood amongst the people of Israel. And there are elaborate instructions about elaborate clothing. There's an ephod, a kind of waistcoat they had to wear, and a breastpiece, which the high priest had to wear, covered in precious stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And there was a, a robe to put on, and a tunic, and turbans. And all of these items of clothing were very carefully designed and very elaborate and very expensive and very precious and very symbolic and taken together they represented the set-apartness of the priests that only the priest only the high priests could make sacrifice on behalf of the people which would close the gap between God and his people the priest stood in the gap between God and his people the priest was enabled by God to deal temporarily with the sins of the people so the people themselves would come close to God and all these items of clothing represented that priestly position and here is Jesus the great high priest who takes off his outer clothes and doesn't put on the finery of the priest, but wraps himself in a towel and kneels to wash his disciples' feet. And here we see the genius of Christianity. Genius of Christianity is the great inversion. Everything gets turned upside down. This past week, there's been an absolutely extraordinary and I think utterly disproportionate amount of news coverage given to Russell Brand to most of us probably have no particular interest in, but it's taken up so much focus in our news this week. And whatever he did and didn't do, what we do know he did do, <laughs> because he said it, is that he used his power, he used his fame to get the things that he wanted. That's normal business. That's the way of the world. So it might not always look quite as it does with Russell Brand, but it's essentially how the world works. You use your power to get what you want. You use your power to leverage your position to make the most that you can, to get ahead as far as you can. What Jesus does is turn that completely on its head. Completely on its head. The great inversion. That he who is truly powerful stooped down to utter humility. And that's why Christianity makes no sense in the eyes of the world. It's why Christianity so often is despised, hated, even feared by the world. It's why, it's why Satan fears Jesus, because Jesus hasn't used his power in the way that Satan would expect. It's all been turned upside down. Jesus upends what is normal. He steps down from heaven, wraps a towel around his waist, washes his disciples' feet, and loves them to the end loves them right up to the moon and back, loves us like that. And we are invited to step into an experience of that world-transforming love, the power of the love of Christ. What we see in Jesus is this amazing humility, a, a humble power. And a response, we should respond like Peter did, the third of his emotional responses all in. 
Lord, I want to be all in. And we should look and say, Lord, we do. We ask that we would know objectively the power of your love, but that subjectively we might feel it too. Holy Spirit, would you apply in our hearts afresh the amazing, overwhelming love of Christ, he who has loved us to the end. He who's loved us to the moon and right back. Would you stand and I'll pray and we'll come to worship. Holy Spirit, I do pray for us right now. I pray that you would apply the love of Christ in our hearts afresh. Pray that as we sing now and as we come and take the bread and the wine, that we would experience, know in a fresh way, the love of Christ, you who have loved us to the end. I pray we would feel the challenge of this story, this encounter. Lord, I pray as we, as we come to the table and examine ourselves, Lord, if there is any muck on our feet, that we would recognize that, confess that, and allow you to wash us again. And Lord, provoke us where we... Yeah, what does it mean for us to be Christ-like? What does it mean to step into this blessing which comes when we wash one another's feet? What does that look like for us? Pray that we would embrace that. We'd embrace this upside-down approach to life. Because as we do so, that is where we find blessing. That is where we experience your love. That is where we know Christ-like power. Power that changes the world. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. All that means, how that liberates us, frees us, sets us free from the normal pattern of this world, from its demands and expectations. We can walk in freedom as we walk with you. So let us run to you now. And let us know you reaching out and ministering to us. This amazing free grace, this amazing love, this amazing forgiveness, amazing blessing poured out on your people because of your extraordinary humility and generosity to us. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.